Welcome to Radio KBPV, Tales of Kootenay Brown Pioneer Village, a podcast about the history of southwestern Alberta, presented by Kootenay Brown Pioneer Village of Pincher Creek, a museum complex that documents the stories of Western Canada's agricultural settlement through the preservation of local buildings and artifacts among a six-acre park. Pincher Creek is a town of 3,700 souls in a vast rural trading area of some 3,000 rural dwellers. A vibrant region of rolling prairie, foothills, the Rocky Mountains, the Pecani First Nation, Waterton Lakes National Park, the Crow's Nest Pass, and the Upper River Watershed of the South Saskatchewan River Basin. Join us in this podcast where we present walking tours of our buildings and hear the stories of the farmers, townsmen, cowboys, mounties, pioneer women, politicians, chroniclers, miners, railroaders, and so many other significant histories of this particular corner of Canada. Well, hello and welcome back to Radio KBPV. I am your host, Ranger Gord Tolton. It's April 29th, 2020, and about day, oh, I don't know, 1 million of the great COVID-19 pandemic lockdown and the emergency enforced closure of Kootenay Brown Pioneer Village. Naturally, we're all anxious in the village to advance into whatever our brave new world will look like post-crisis. However, keep in mind that we do intend to be back in the saddle once the horse tells us it's ready to get back on. In the meantime, we continue with our series of podcasts. We have a few buildings left in our virtual village tour. We are also carrying on with the Kootenay for Kids podcasts that are available for online school classes and teachers almost anywhere that the internet touches. And in this episode today, we are going to continue with our regular podcast adaptations of Farley's Frontier Chronicles as the columns that appear in our local media, Shooting the Breeze and the Pincher Creek Echo. These narrations are generally written by our frontier chronicler, curator, author, historian, and general bon vivant, Farley Wuth, and narrated and produced by yours truly. In February, we began a series initiated by the unfortunate fire that consumed the landmark King Edward Hotel. Since then, Farley has continued to crank out histories of other local inns of southwestern Alberta, and today we carry on that series with the Arlington Hotel of Pincher Creek and the short hit but wonderful history of the Beaver Mines Hotel. And we'll begin right away with Beaver Mine. Well, local history buffs will recall the importance of the coal mining industry in terms of Beaver Mines' history. For those of you who don't know, Beaver Mines is a small community that exists far to the west of uh, Pincher Creek. Well, actually, not all that far. A few minutes' drive. It's now an important uh, camping and resort area within Castle Park. But it also uh, its reason for existence was in uh, during railroad days and in the the days of, of uh, coal production, a thriving community. Peak coal production was attained in the years immediately prior to the First World War. Shipping links of the coal mined in that area with the outside world were provided by the Kootenai and Alberta Railway. And you've heard about that in in previous podcasts of Radio KBP. And that railway, of course, was made notorious by its windswept wooden trestles spanning Mill Creek and Langs Coulee. Well, along with the history of the coal mines and that railway, and the rough-and-tumble nature of the coal mining industry, we also have uh, reflected in one of the business establishments of that community, the Beaver Mines Hotel. 
Serious interest in the Beaver Mines coal resources dated to 1907. The consortium that mined the Beaver Mines area was known as the Western Coal and Coke Company. Coke not being a drink of that area, Coke being a uh, a process of cooking coal so that it removes a lot of the impurities. And the idea of that is basically it just makes for cheaper transportation and and is basically a processing aspect of the more you're efficient your coal is, the more people will want it, more demand it will be for it. Well, during the 1914 calendar year, that Western Coal and Coke were operating two mines in the area. The first was immediately south of the settlement itself, where it found a coal seam that was measuring over seven feet across and which plunged into the ground at a 30-degree angle. The additional yet smaller seams were located farther underground. Across the Beaver Creek Valley were located in four different seams, 27 feet of coal. And this is where the second mine operated by Alberta Coal and Coke was located. As the First World War broke out, the company manager was Samuel McVicar and Norman Morrison served at its, as its chief clerk. David Muir had the very dangerous job of pitball. A large number of miners were employed in those two mines over the years, and many who resided in small cottages in the settlement, but a lot took lodging at the Beaver Mines Hotel. This hotel was considered by many pioneers to be the center of the community. Its highest business success came during the boom years before the First World War. When coal extraction was at near full capacity, extra miners were brought in to work the mines. Many of the younger and single fellows found lodgings more to their liking at the Beaver Mines Hotel. And part of that attraction was that there were board or food services and, of course, the bar services. Because this is long before Prohibition. Having long-term lodgers rooming and boarding in these pioneer hotels was a very common thing to see during the pioneer era. This provided both regular income for the hotel and ensured housing for people who may not have been able to secure any alternative arrangement or anywhere else to live. However, the hotel did receive some uh, competition in the accommodation industry from a boarding house operated by Mrs. George Gerard, who unfortunately we don't know her her first name, and uh, she remains one of the mystery figures from our history, which virtually nothing left known of her. We know the name only from records and newspapers. Insights into the some of the hotel's commercial history can be obtained from the early assessment rolls of the Beaver Mine School District, number 3134, whose early history dates from 1914 to its closure in 1930. The school had a student enrollment, but closed for six years and reopened again from 1928 and operated also to 1944 as the nearby Coalfield School. Now, many of these dusty old ledgers are now housed, uh, professionally archived, in the Kootenay Brown Pioneer Village. And from researching these, we can see that the Beaver Mines Hotel had an assessed real estate value of $10,000 in 1915 and paid $50 in school taxes in that year. Both the property value and taxes remained the same the following year, Some six years later, in 1922, the property value had actually decreased to $3,200, and its currency or taxes had decreased to less than $45. So we can see that uh, there's some economic doldrums going on by uh, uh, extrapolating these figures. By 1927, it gets worse. Just five years later, the hotel's real estate value had plummeted to $1,700, and its school taxes were assessed at a whopping $6.95. In 1929, the property assessment remained the same, 
but school taxes had increased to $13.60. Now, that steady decrease in the property value over that decade does indicate the decreasing fortunes of the entire uh, industry of coal mining in that settlement. There was less coal extraction following the First World War, and we know from our railway history that the, uh, the Kootenai and Alberta Railway had taken away their main access, so everything had to be either trucked out or hauled by wagon. The commercial outlets, such as the Beaver Mines Hotel, faced difficult times in maintaining any anything approaching the previous business level that it enjoyed before the war. The Beaver Mines Hotel did enjoy a series of good economic times, however, in those years. Its grand opening in March of 1914 was pegged as one of the biggest social events of the year, attended by a large turnout of pioneers from the area. Festivities included complimentary bar services, supper, and dancing. So folklore indicates that the hotel had a very large dining room, which would have been packed by the event. And that made headlines in our Pincher Creek Echo, which is ever eager to cover the news of the outlying rural settlement. And that opening, of course, was reflective of the optimism at that time. And its future seemed secure, but that optimism ended with August of 1914, when anything that uh, was of value was put into the doldrums by, by the outbreak of the First World War. So that appeared in the Living History column of the Pincher Creek Echo in March 18th of 2020. And as we said, research written and submitted by Farley Wood, curator, Kootenay Brown Pioneer Village. And now we're going to move on to the history of the Arlington Hotel. So now we'll be moving into a set of two columns uh, written by Farley, and we'll give the dates uh, towards the end of this. The Frontier Chronicles of the Arlington Hotel. So Pincher Creek's Arlington Hotel, if you've been paying attention, was one of four Frontier Hotels constructed during the community's early days. The Arlington was located on the north side of Main Street. The Arlington Hotel was located on the north side of Main Street, nearly midway between the three-story LaBelle store at the Christie Avenue corner, and the King Edward Hotel of similar height, a block further east of the East Avenue corner, so all well within an easy walking distance. Now, these three business structures presented an impressive visual presence in that portion of Pincher Creek's dusty downtown core, and that was designed to inspire commercial confidence for local pioneers and the traveling public. So, yes, at one point in time, you'd uh, come in, either on your wagon or in a car when you first visited Pincher Creek. The street actually gave the uh, the town a defined skyline. Now across the street was the Alberta Hotel, which is still there, which predated the Arlington by only a few years. Nearly two blocks to the northeast was the Waldorf Hotel, situated across the creek on Bridge Avenue, and that's directly across the, cro- the crosswalk from the entrance of uh, Kootenay Brown Pioneer Village today. The Arlington Hotel was strategically situated in the center of a busy community and designed to pick up walk-by trade. The Arlington witnessed more than a half century of continuous service in Pincher Creek, constructed in the early 1890s, and it saw a major addition in 1904. Both its building and expansion were a result of the increasing demand for hotel-type accommodations in a ranching and farming settlement that was witnessing rapid expansion between the community's establishment in 1878 and the outbreak of the First World War in 1914. The hotel continued in business until it was torn down around 1950 or 1951, and its demise left for years a physical void in the center of town 
filled only by a gravel parking lot. And those of you who have been uh, walking by the uh, the ruins of the King Edward Hotel, well, you're uh, feeling something now in common with the people in 1951. Suddenly saw the Arlington disappear. That was, it was a memorable structure, eye-catching during its pioneer operations. Much of it was a brick construction and therefore earned the name of the Brick Hotel. Many Alberta brick buildings used materials that were manufactured in Redcliffe and Medicine Hat during a period of 30 years between 1881 and 1912. However, local bricks prior to 1900 came from a manufacturing site just two miles northeast of Pincher Creek, also known as the Lavasseur Farm. Bricks used for the hotel's 1904 add-on would have easily been brought in from either Redcliffe or Medicine Hat via the Crow's Nest line of the CPR to Pincher City and, of course, would have had to have been hauled in. A pioneer by the name of Eugene Chamberlain is said to have been the bricklayer who built the Arlington. He also constructed the two-story Morden House on Adelaide Street, which is still stands north of the creek. While details of the size of the original structure are scant, while details of the size of the original structure are scant, the vast array of improvements afforded by the 1904 expansion indicates the Arlington was at the cutting edge of early 20th, 20th century hospitality standards. The structure at this point was now two and a half stories in height, with a popularly used second floor veranda spanning its in entire full length across the front. The words Hotel Arlington proudly blazed across the third level. Its interior was remembered for a variety of rooms and services. On the main floor were the public areas, an improved bar, a large well-appointed dining room, and expansive pool room. Archival photos depict the former with a massive wooden bar with ornate decorations running the full length of the room. And behind was a long mirror. A metal ceiling with embossed walls and brass rails made the otherwise very long and dark room quite eye-catching. Stuffed wild birds and a steam radiator adorned the back wall. A wooden metal cigar lighter, which is now an artifact housed at the Cunitian Brown Pioneer Village, sat upon a corner of the bar. The lighter was placed in the hanging chrome-plated handle. A newly added feature was geared towards the fairer gender as well as the discriminating consumer of those times, and that's a private ladies' parlor, where special events were hosted and a sample room where commercial salesmen, or traveling salesmen, as you, they later became known, could exhibit their sales items as they passed through town. A wooden staircase with an intricate banister accessed the upper floors, and nearby were brass jardinieres which decorated the out, outer areas. I believe a jardinier's more, for, more uh, less formally known as a spittoon. On the second and third levels were more than two dozen newly improved rooms. A series of brass tag keys accessed the room. If the patrons accidentally walked off with one of these, it could be sent by return mail for a whopping two cents postage. By the 1940s, some of these rooms were converted to apartments. Common baths and flush toilets, a real up-to-date novelty in the, those frontier times, were installed on the upper floors. The entire building was steam-heated throughout. Display ads placed in the Pincher Creek Echo during the early 1900s promoted the Arlington as being first-class and up-to-date in every respect. Now, what kind of service could you get in a Pioneer Hotel? Well, it was said to be a very high-quality service. Dining room meals were a specialty during the era, the Christmas menu from 1908 being a case in point. 
Adorning a four-page, highly colorful, festive format, the menu provided a mouth-watering selection of appetizers, main courses, and desserts. For their introductory soups, Christmas diners had a choice of oyster cocktail, cream à la potage, or consommé windsor. There were two selections of fish, boiled Columbia salmon with anchovy sauce, mm-mm, or stuffed halibut, garnished with sliced lemon. Fresh salads included egg salad, slim salad a la mayonnaise sauce, oranges and cream, and salted almonds. Patrons also had a choice of two boiled meats, sugar-cured ham with champagne sauce, or boiled chicken accompanied by bread sauce. Ever-favorite roasts included tenderloin of beef and Yorkshire pudding, leg of mutton, and French caper sauce, young turkey and cranberry jelly, and domestic goose with baked apple sauce. Well, I'm going to have to stop this podcast and go get something to eat here. An assortment of hot vegetables was on the table, including mashed and boiled potatoes, asparagus and butter sauce, and French green peas. Sweets, as desserts were called a century ago, encompassed apple, lemon, and hot mince pies, English plum pudding with hot brandy sauce, German trifle pudding, Christmas cake, almond cookies, finger cake with cream sauce, and port wine and strawberry jellies. An assortment of fruit, mixed nuts, raisins, and cheese rounded out the festive menu selections. And in terms of bar service, the hotel proprietors proudly proclaimed that our liqueurs are unexcelled as we buy direct from the east. Equally important was the hotel's daily bus service between its establishment and Pincher City where the closest railway station and depot were located. This was considered by the major hotels in town, as the King Edward offered similar connections, as essential business practices in a settlement that just didn't have a a direct rail link. Before the mechanized vehicles came along, the norm were horse-pulled stagecoaches that met all incoming and outgoing passenger and freight trains to ensure that a much-coveted transportation connection with the outside world was maintained. This service added to the business viability of the Arlington Hotel as it brought potential guests directly to its front door and returned them back to the rail station after their stay. In relation to that, a company-operated stable was located immediately to the hotel's west. Because of these services, the Arlington Hotel was well patronized by the locals and the traveling public alike. Special events were the norm. The hotel was also utilized for patriotic gatherings. The hotel was also utilized for patriotic gatherings. The Pincher Creek volunteers, for instance, gathered in front of the Arlington Hotel during their send-off to the South African War in 1899. And the hotel also served as a boarding place for many of Pincher Creek's single men, which added to the business's profitability. Nearly a dozen such fellows, included local photographer Hector Perrier, resided there as of 1905. A similar set of pioneers, including the former coal mine magnate Andrew Christie, claimed the Arlington as their residence some five years later. Now, who were the uh, hotel owners, managers, and employees that contributed to the history of the Arlington Hotel? A wide breadth of local pioneers were connected with the Arlington during the 60-year existence. Early partners in the business were E.J. Mitchell and Charles Giddies. Mitchell was the former owner-operator of Pincher Creek's first pharmacy, located directly across the street from the hotel, which made it very convenient for him to oversee both businesses. That store dated back to 1886, and Mitchell had a connection with both the E.J. Mitchell drugstore and the Arlington Hotel, until his death in 1911. Charles Geddes was a rancher, first immediately uh, west of the settlement of Pincher Creek and later relocating to the Yarrow District, south of town, uh, close to what is now Twin Butte. Although he passed away in 1898, 
Gettys actually pulled out of the Arlington Hotel business several years earlier. His successor in that partnership was William Reston Doby, who had come west from Ontario via Saskatchewan in the late 1880s. He remained with the Arlington Hotel until his passing in 1921, and it's Doby that is seen as the main driving force between the long-term success of the Arlington. He was very community-minded and served as Pincher Creek's second elected mayor, his term being from 1910 to 1914, and many descendants reside in the community today. Following Mr. Doby's passing, the ownership of the Arlington went on to its longtime manager, Richard Harris. Harris had been hired a decade earlier with the passing of E.J. Mitchell to oversee day-to-day operations, as Doby wanted to retain ownership of his flagship business, but needed a manager to look after those, those minute details that pop up. Harris was born in England in the 1860s and came to Pincher Creek in 1908. With his purchase of the Arlington, the hotel continued to be a business icon throughout the roaring 1920s. He expanded his commercial interests in 1926 by purchasing the neighboring King Edward Hotel. And that was a move that pleased the Pincher Creek Echo. An editorial has served, asserted that Harris would restore the, the class to both operations. Further changes took place two years later when the Arlington was purchased by the Cushell Hotel Company. Harris wanted to retire, and the hotel management was taken over by John Coghill, most recently of the town of Warner, who had also previously resided in nearby Cowley. A year later, in May 1929, the Arlington again was sold, this time to the Flaherty Hotel Company, and Fred Clinch became the new manager. By the time of the 1930s, Stan Walker took over management, and he retired in December of 1943 due to poor health. The new manager was Arthur Davis, originally from Kelowna, B.C., and at one point, the facility was also managed by Scotty and Mona Turnbull. Employees provided much-needed assistance with the hotel's operations, According to the 1906 Dominion Census, the 51-year-old Martin Flood was the Arlington's bartender. Also working there that year was Joseph Callahan, who also may have been uh, Frank Callahan, as both names tend to appear in the lore. Callahan was the hotel's front desk clerk, but a few years later also served as his bartender. Hugh Denell, 30 years old, was employed as a porter for the Arlington, taking bags up and down the stairs. Gatsang Wong, age 40, and Harry Lee, half his age at 20 years, served as hotel's cook and assistant cook, respectively. And the 25-year-old Lee Chung worked in the hotel's laundry. And the 25-year-old Lee Chung worked in the hotel's laundry. Wong, Lee, and Chung represented an important but overlooked aspect of Pincher Creek's multicultural heritage. Waitress that year was 30-year-old Emily Taylor. Now, by 1911, the Arlington Hotel staff seems to have changed by looking at the census. James Johnston, born in March 1886, and Robert Cox, born less than two years earlier in November 1884, were the two porters. They hailed from the Ontario and the United States, respectively. Chang Chow, born in China in October 1888, served as cook after emigrating to Canada at the age of 23 years old. In 1910, he earned just over $1,000 in job earnings, so that was a well-paid cook for that point in time. He was assisted in the kitchen by a cook's helper who unfortunately has gone unnamed. Also um, in mystery is uh, two young women who served as waitresses. One only goes by the name of Ida, as her surname couldn't be deciphered. It's the penmanship of the census records, and neither could uh, the Irish-born Lizzie. But we do know that their wages amounted to $300 apiece. More identifiable is 
Effie McNabb, who worked as a domestic in the housekeeping department, and their salaries were comparable to their... Effie McNabb's salary was comparable to her waitressing colleagues. A later employee of the Arlington Hotel was John Ira Glass, better known as Jack Glass, who hailed from the Summerview District. He was born in January 1895 and was a veteran of the First World War. By the late 1930s, uh, Glass and his wife moved into town, settling in the former manse of the Methodist Church, just a block away from the hotel. And that building is still um, around as the, I believe it's the Lion's Den on Main Street. He worked during the 1945 to 1947 period in the billiards room of the Arlington Hotel. Now, the hotel served the community of Pincher Creek well, but the management decided to close the operation, and as we said earlier, it was torn down in the early 1950. We have to have some detail that its lumber was utilized to build and furnish at least one house, a residence reconstructed at the west end of town. But that chapter of local commercial industry had come to an unfortunate ending. Now, as these columns have appeared in the Pincher Creek Echo, and also in Shooting the Breeze, uh, another newspaper of Pincher Creek, of interest in the historical location of the site of the old Arlington Hotel is that it's right next door to the offices of, wait for it, Shooting the Breeze. So these columns appeared in March 18th and March 25th of 2020 in the Frontier Canadian Recollections columns of Shooting the Breeze. Well, that's it today for this look back in our installment of our hotel series of episodes. Thank you for listening. Everyone out there, stay safe for the sake of yourself and your loved ones, and let's get past this crisis and on to new chapters in our ongoing history. Goodbye, everyone. Thank you for listening to Tales of Kootenay Brown Pioneer Village. This episode was researched and written by historians Farley Wood and Gord Tolton. This podcast is recorded and engineered by Gord Tolton. Episodes can be found at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, or any other podcatcher. Visit our website at www.kootenaybrown.ca. Kootenay is spelled K-O-O-T-E-N-A-I. Also, visit and join our pages on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for more information on our museum, or even better, visit us at 1037 Beverly McLaughlin Drive in beautiful Pincher Creek, Alberta.